What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. As you guys all know, I'm Tyler, and back with me today, recording in the Vivid Seats studio, is my coach, Charlie. And Charlie is going to help me out with part one of our Week 5 mailbag. After the events of Saturday night and how that Notre Dame game went down, we anticipated a high volume of questions and comments. And in this one case, we were spot on. You guys loaded us up with a multitude of questions, comments, and observations. And in order to get to all of them, because they all deserve answering, we're going to break this week's mailbag into two parts. So this is part one. And Curtis and I will be back later on the week to answer all the questions and respond to all the comments that we do not get to today. All right, guys, we've got a ton of questions to get to today. So we want to go ahead and get to it. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to my coach, Charlie. Charlie, take it away. All right, our first question comes from Lynn, and she's referencing the press about Kirby needing to quote-unquote free Jake Fromm. So Tyler, in your opinion, is he indeed held captive, or is it just Kirby's overall theory on run-first football? You know what? I did actually reference this myself uh, on our recap show, and I, I'm ab- absolutely buying into this right now. Kirby, if you listen to his post-game press conference, he himself didn't come up flat out say, I'm going to free Jake Fromm. He didn't phrase it that way. But if you kind of read between the lines, it was pretty clear that he realizes now after that game, especially how Fromm performed in the second half and leading us to that victory, that he's got to open things up a little bit and let Jake Fromm do what Jake Fromm does, which is, which is essentially what Kirby was saying there. So, yeah, I, I do think that right now, I think he's being held captive to Kirby's guiding offensive philosophy. And it's partly that, but I also think, to me, this is kind of what I mentioned on the recap show, I think it also has a lot to do with just a lack of trust, generally speaking, in our wide receiver core right now. Because I mean, we we know it was well-documented. I know, Charlie, you don't want to hear this because you were so tired before the season of hearing about the wide receiver questions. And I think they performed well, but clearly it's pretty obvious right now through four games that when it's crunch time like it was against Notre Dame, or in a big-time matchup like that, our coaches with their game plan just don't quite trust our receivers right now to go out and open up the offense. And look, I mean, in, to a degree, I understand that. There's very few veterans out there, and the guys you do have as veterans, uh, Tyler Simmons is not like a game-breaking type wide receiver. Lawrence Cage, I think we're starting to see what he's capable of doing, but he's still new to our system. And then everyone else is either very young or very inexperienced. Of course, you've got Dom Blaylock. You've got uh, George Pickens. So those guys had big games against Arkansas State, but not as big here against uh, Notre Dame. You've got Matt Landers, who's not as young. He's been around for a while, but he has played very little. D-Rob is still new and youngish in our system. He played a lot of cows, a true freshman. hasn't played a lot for us. So I just don't know if there's a, enough trust right there uh, there at, at this point. But I think we need to start trusting those receivers pretty quick because they're not. They, those guys are talented, but they're not going to grow and get to the level that we need them to be at by the end of the season unless we give them opportunities to grow. And we were doing that the first couple weeks, especially the last two weeks coming into Notre Dame. But uh, it's kind of like we just went into our shell and went back to what we're comfortable with, which is running the football. And, and you know, on some level, you would think, why not do that? Because you I mean you look at the offensive lines, what we it's. It is one of the, if not the best, offensive lines in America. You have a great running back room, especially DeAndre Swift, who's one of the top running backs in America. He's the home run threat every time he touches the ball. And also shows a different side of his game, ability to kind of just run between the tackles, run with, with authority and some power there, and just really tough out some, some really physical yards. But I think Kirby kind of leans on that, and when he gets um, in these tough situations, that's what he, I think at his core, that's what Kirby wants to be. 
and it is tempting with our personnel because you always say you, as as a coach you want to you want to fit your offense to your personnel not don't fit your personnel to your offense so oh, in one hand you could uh, it's tough to to say that cuz people believe that people will say that all the time coaches get criticized constantly for trying to force their personnel to fit a system that doesn't really fit their skill set so I, I think our coaches on some level need to be committed for commended for actually trying to run a system that does fit our personnel, but we also have a quarterback who is one of the best quarterbacks. I I would go out and live and say Jake Fromm is the best quarterback in America. I know he doesn't put up the numbers like Tua or Jalen Hurts right now, guys like that, uh, but I think in our system, he is as good as anybody in America, and if we, we saw what he's able to do uh, in that second half against Notre Dame, and I think if we open the offense up more for him, that he's going to make more of those plays. I said in the recap, sure, I'll say it again. I know Joe Burrow right now is getting a lot of publicity, and he is playing outstanding. He's deserving of all of that publicity, deserving of all that publicity. But I fully, 100% believe that Jake Fromm could do everything and more that Joe Burrow is doing in that LSU offense if he was put into that offense. So I'm not saying we need to run the LSU offense or go air raid or something like that, which is not exactly what LSU is doing, but regardless. Um, but I do think we need to give Fromm some more opportunities to throw balls vertically down the field, put some trust in our receivers, uh, because if we don't, like we can beat most teams on our schedule doing what we do, what we have been doing. But it's when we go, when we face the Alabamas of the world, maybe the LSU's at some point, and face other elite teams. We're going to have to be able to put the ball in the air and beat them down the field. We saw that against Alabama in the SEC title game last year. We came out throwing and we got a big lead, and we kind of went into uh, we kind of just went into a shell again. And uh, before you know it, Bama's back into it. So we've got to number one, open up a little bit. Number two, keep our foot on the gas pedal all game long. All right. Up next, Reggie wrote in that he's even more confident after seeing the dogs win in a grinding fashion and that the only real life Notre Dame had during the game was when we gave them the ball inside the 10-yard line. So are you panicking because it wasn't a blowout? And also, to follow that up, Jonathan asks, have your expectations changed at all for the season? Yeah, so those questions are related, so we kind of kind of package those together. Um, and Reggie, I, I responded to you for a second there on Twitter, but I'll put I'll go a little bit more in detail here on the show. But quickly, my answer: Am I panicking because it wasn't a blowout? I know a lot of people out there are. I am not one of those people. Um, and maybe it's because of my mentality going into every game. I go into every game hoping, or basically prepared for the worst, hoping for the best. And it was no different going into Notre Dame. Charlie, you know that. You know how I am before all these games. I'm freaking out. I'm a nervous wreck in the stadium. I'm a nervous wreck tailgating. So maybe I just had a different mentality than most Georgia fans. I didn't necessarily, I, I thought we were good enough to blow them out, but I wasn't necessarily expecting that like a lot of people were. So that's part of it. But I also think, we talked about this on the recap show a little bit, but you've got to put this game in context. Notre Dame has spent an entire offseason feeling disrespected, being pissed off uh, after being basically denigrated and talked down about all offseason long after that defeat to Clemson. It was just another, for most of the people out there, the narrative was, was just another the long line of Notre Dame disappointments against SEC opponents and other big-time opponents like Clemson. Uh, you go all the way back to the 2012 national title game against Alabama. They just haven't performed well in those moments when it's a big-time everybody's eyes on that type game. Um, and they've had an entire year to stew on that. I think this Notre Dame team is potentially going to be better than what they were last year. I think this is an 11-1, 10-2 type team. I think a lot of people are going to feel a lot better about this win later on in the season. Uh, Ian Book, has been in, he's been in the offense now for for a couple of years. He started last year after a game. He was inserted as a starter in Game 4. So it was his team at maybe towards the end of the year, but it wasn't like he would enter the, enter the season as the guy. Now he's had an entire offseason to be that guy, to kind of command the respect, to be the established starter. Uh, their defense is a year older, a year more experienced, a year better. They've added some playmakers out there at wide receiver. 
Cole Komet, who had like less than 200 yards receiving his first two years combined in Notre Dame, is now a force to be reckoned with. We saw that it was the first time he's played all year. So I think this Notre Dame team is actually pretty good. And, and no, we didn't play our best. Notre Dame probably played about as well as they could in that game or close to it. And we played about like a C-level game maybe. So the fact that we were still able to win that game, despite certainly not playing to the level that we're ultimately going to hopefully be capable of playing and as, as well as we know that we can play, I still feel pretty good about it. And yeah, there's a ton of things to be fixed. So that's on the recap show. There's a lot of things that we've got to fix. And we'll talk more about those as we get on um, with the show. There's a lot of questions about those things. But I, I just go back to it. The things that we have to be good at to be a true contender, the pieces that we have to have, we've got them. We've got an elite offensive line. We've got an elite quarterback. We've got an elite defense all around. Our front seven has vastly improved from what it was last year. We have all the pieces that we need. There's just some things that we've got to clean up on. And we've got Rodrigo Blankenship as well. you got to throw him in there. Um, so, yeah, I'm not panicking. We, we need to improve. There are some things I'm concerned about. But look at where we were this time last year. We weren't what we ended up being at the end of the year. Look at where we were in 2017 when we played Notre Dame in Week 2. By the time we got to the playoffs, we were an entirely different football team. So it's still an early season. It's early in the season. We've got time to improve, but we just got to keep getting better. There's no doubt there. So I'm my expectations have not changed. Going to Jonathan's question, I feel very strongly it's still a, a playoff caliber, but potentially a national championship caliber team if we get everything straightened out because we have those pieces. The, the key elements that you have to have, we have them. All right. Up next, Cliff says that in his opinion, the dogs were fortunate to be served some humble pie without being beat and that Notre Dame out game planned UGA um, from what he could tell, especially early in the game. So does a lot of the blame for the issues that he's upset about and a lot of the fans are upset about fall on the coaching staff? Uh, it's a great question, Cliff. Makes some great points there, my man. Uh, and thanks again, Cliff, for joining us on the uh, the pick show last week. You did an amazing job. I think he actually, uh, I have to go back and tally it again, but just my first initial thought, I think he beat both of us. Uh, I think I might have uh, gone seven uh, and three. He went eight and two, maybe. So, Cliff, uh, rock on. And Charlie, I mean, bad. you tweeted about this, the it Michigan pick. It it's bad. okay. I was the one that had Michigan in the playoffs, yeah. so uh, I'm probably even worse there. Uh, but anyway, back to the question, uh, Cliff. It kind of, I think it depends on what you're upset about and what, because I know different people are upset about different things. There are some commonalities there, but um, the, the things that I'm frustrated frustrated with, though, yeah, I would say I would put a lot of that on the coaches. And what I'm most frustrated with is I I, I hate using the term creativity, but just the predictability offensively. You know. We kept saying in the first couple of weeks, oh, we're holding things back for Notre Dame. We're holding things back for Notre Dame. Charlie, did you see anything different offensively against Notre Dame that we've done the rest of the year? No. I saw nothing different. I saw nothing different. So this idea that we were holding things back for Notre Dame, I didn't see that. Maybe we're holding them back for Tennessee. Uh, hopefully not. Maybe Florida now. Like A&M, is that where we're going? I I think we're right now our offense is what it is. And maybe we haven't we haven't run a lot of different things because, we, again, we don't feel comfortable with the receivers. I don't know the situation right now. But um, at this point, it just seems like our offense is what our offense is. I was waiting for us to do some different things, some of the actions that we've run throughout the year, especially those jet sweeps. But we just haven't really done anything all that different. So, uh, again, the fact that Jake Fromm was handcuffed to a degree in that first half, that's incredibly frustrating to me. We have an elite quarterback, a third-year starter. These guys do not grow on trees. We will not have a guy like this for the next couple of years. We need to take advantage of it while we have it. Yeah, I know there's some... there's. You get the offensive line, you got the running backs. You want to obviously take advantage of that as well, but we just cannot go into a shell and, and just hide Jake from this guy can go out there and make play after play after play. We've got to open up a little bit more offensively, be willing to throw the ball vertically down the field. So we got a question about the offensive line that we're going to get to here in a few minutes, but 
As crazy offensive line is, when you've got six blockers and eight defenders in the box, you're not consistently going to win that battle. And the way that you you challenge that is you throw the ball vertically down the field with your, with your third-year starter at quarterback who could very well potentially going to be a first-round draft pick. You've got to let the guy go out there and make plays. We've got talent receiver. It's inexperienced, yes, but they're only going to get better if we go out there and throw the football a little bit. So, yeah, those things I'm frustrated with. I do think you can argue that the – coaches were out game plan, which is, for me, I actually usually feel like we have a pretty good game plan coming into most games. Sometimes adjustments, uh, offensively especially, defensively, I feel like we always adjust very well. Offensively, some adjustments in the past with Jim Chaney, those uh, were always made in game. I thought he did a really good job game planning before the game, but then once teams got kind of beat on what we were doing, then uh, he kind of went into a shell. But uh, I, I think you can make an argument that, that they may have game plan better than us coming into this game. But I think we made the better in-game adjustments, especially at halftime defensively, uh, putting more attention on Cole Komet because uh, we were essentially doubling the, the outside guys like Chase Claypool once Tyreek McGee went in the game. They weren't really challenging us there. So we went and we adjusted and we put more attention there on, on Komet, took him away. And they didn't really challenge us, which I, it, to me is kind of inexplicable for them. I don't think they made the, the correct adjustment. They should have challenged us out wide. They should have challenged Tiger McGee a lot quicker than they did. Fortunately for us, they waited until the end of the game when they were down two scores. So, um, yeah, I think you'd argue that we might have gotten out game plan, but I think we out-adjusted them, out-coached them in-game, which I know there are some people out there I've seen that are frustrated that Kirby's coaching in-games and he can't coach in-game. Uh, I don't know if I buy that, man. Yeah, I know you can, you can, you can quibble with the decision to kick the field goal on fourth down. Uh, one of the issues I did have is like on the on the. We were talking about this in the game, Charlie. Remember when the uh, there was the was it the holding on the kickoff, and we decided to re-kick from the fifty. Oh yeah, instead, that was strange. And we it actually I ended still up being, don't understand. Well, he was trying to squib it and hopefully get him caught like inside the five or ten, or maybe force a turnover. But it turned out that they got the ball in the twenty six instead of the twenty five, and we could have had him on the fifteen. Which right, exactly. Yeah, at that point in the game, I don't agree with that decision. And Kirby's he's human; he makes mistakes. I think he would probably like to have that decision back. But I, have, I really personally, we talked about this in the recap show. I have no issue with the fourth down call. That actually, I think it proved to be the right call because if he if he goes for it there and we don't get it, and you know we have had our issues in short yardage offensively, and we don't get it there. Uh, then you know they they only need a field goal on that last drive, and they were in position to make that happen. It goes in overtime. You never know what happens in overtime. So I think that proved out to be the correct decision. But uh, yeah, I think we adjust well, but I don't think we game plan necessarily as well as as Notre Dame. But they also they also had essentially a bye. Come, they, they played the week before against New Mexico, but in week two they had a bye week, and you know they weren't preparing for New Mexico. They were getting ready for us, so they had a little bit more time there. So um, yeah, I think those are all good points, though, Cliff. All right. Next up, G asks, is he crazy if he says J.R. Reed is the best safety in America? Dude, uh, G, I, 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 I'm thinking I might be there with you. I don't know if I'm quite ready to say the best safety in America, but, dude, he is up there. Top three, top five for Didn't sure. Kirby call him the human eraser? He is. Kind of like what Roquan, yeah, it's what yeah. Roquan used to be for us. And, and J.R., I mean, that interception he made, the read first off, and then the ability to close on that and make that play and then keep your feet in bounds all the way around, incredible. Uh, pro football focus thing had him rated at as a, almost like a 91 rating for or his grade for the game, which and I, I pro football focus. I mean, they do a nice job. I don't exactly know what their method what their methods are for grading guys. So I'm always hesitant to throw that out there because I don't want the I don't know if they're as transparent with that as as I would like. So I could feel more comfortable talking about what they're doing with their grades. But they graded him out very high in that game. Um, and I, that kind of aligns with what we all saw there. I mean, it wasn't just that interception. He had a couple of other pass deflections, seven tackles. Um, he is. He's, he has become an eraser back there. Not the biggest dude in the world, but he, he plays aggressively. He knows exactly where to be. He flies downhill. He, 
we talk about how much ground Richard LeCount covers in the secondary. He does. But JR, man, he covers. I mean, he's very comparable to Richard LeCount how much ground he can cover as well. So I don't think this guy gets near much as, as near enough love for based on what I think he deserves. You hear guys like Grant Delpit, Xavier McKinney, Alabama, those guys get a lot of love. But J.R. Reed, he needs to start being mentioned among the top safeties in America. Because I think if this guy continues his level of play that we've seen through the first four games, he absolutely deserves to be in the conversation for first team all American at safety. There's no doubt. I agree. Alright, next question is from Zeeshan. I hope I said your name right. Please let me know if I did not. Yeah, hit us up on Twitter. I actually had the same question. Because we know that I cannot read. So, he wants to know, what are you seeing from our lines? He says, the offensive line seems incredibly overhyped after this game, being unable to give from the necessary time in the pocket and open holes for the running backs. And then the defensive line and outside linebackers gave little to no pressure. What's all that about? Yeah, and, and, and Zeeshan, Z, uh, I appreciate, appreciate the question, man. I know you sent this in before we uh, were able to post the, the recap show with, with my voice issues. Um, so I kind of addressed this a little bit on that show, but I'll talk about it a little bit more. Um, I think the offensive line was put into a bad spot. And, and look, we face stacked boxes. We face plus one scenarios all the time, and we're still able to run that ball with success. You, and if you, but you go back and you look at some of our games, oftentimes, especially against better competition, we don't run the ball all that effectively in the first half, but it's kind of like a wear them down by design type philosophy where we get in this, you got you to keep pounding. Even if you're not getting the big chunk plays in the first half, you got to keep pounding, got to keep pounding. In the second half, with our depth and uh, what we're able to do, just kind of lean on them with the, with the physicality and the sides we have on the offensive line, then things start to open up. And we saw that to a lesser degree on Saturday. I do, I do think some of the uh, bigger runs we had were in the second half. We've, and we see that uh, time after time in the past couple of years here with our offensive line. So it was not the big 250-plus yard rushing game that we've had. Had the first three games, only 152 yards rushing, a little under five yards a carry. But again, I think you got to put this into context. Notre Dame was flat out 100% selling out to stop the run. I mean, they were going with zero coverage at times, which means no deep safeties at all. And uh, at times, not only was it a plus one scenario, there were times where it was a plus two scenario. We might have six blockers there in the box and they've got eight defenders. And there, you have guys just flat out running unblocked. I mean, they're free runners. It, it's You're just not going to consistently win those battles. A lot of times when we're getting brought down at or behind the line of scrimmage, it was because you have guys coming off the edge or uh, that are that are absolutely unblocked and they're, they're not accounted for uh, in the run blocking scheme there. So I, I think that's why I go back to we need to throw the football a little bit more to loosen some of that up early in the game. I know sometimes I think we're arrogant in that regard, that we just think we're bigger, badder, and stronger than you. We have better players up front, and we're just going to run it over, over you no matter how many guys you have in the box. And that's just uh, not how math works. So uh, I think we need to kind of go back to the drawing board there. I thought the offensive line, when I, when I went back and watched it uh, again on Sunday, they were actually getting movement on the guys that they were blocking. It's just, again, there weren't enough offensive linemen to block all the guys that Notre Dame had in the box a lot of the time. So that became an issue. Now, with the defensive line, the outside linebackers, uh, oh, real, real quick, with the offensive line, though, I do want to mention one more thing. Um, I thought they actually protected Fromm really well in this game. There had been some issue with that in the first three games, but the strength of that Notre Dame defense coming into the game we talked about on the, on the preview show was 100% their pass rushers. They have good players all around, but their pass rushers are the most dangerous part of that defense. And we absolutely held those guys in check. And that was without two starting offensive linemen for most of that game. Isaiah Wilson comes back in in the second half, but he was hobbling around far from 100%. I got to give that guy a lot of props for gutting it out. But he wasn't in there in the first half. Solomon Kinley goes out late in the first half. Uh, Justin Schaefer comes in, who hasn't played a ton for us. 
did a really good job. So even without our offensive line being close to 100%, we still held an elite pass rushing unit to zero sacks and zero registered quarterback hurries. There was one play I would call a quarterback hurry where Fromm kind of got hit as he's throwing the football. Uh, at least a, a quarterback hit there, but wasn't uh, in the stat book registered as a as a quarterback hurry. Um, so I thought they did actually a really good job, better than they played in, in pass protection, I think all year to that point. So I thought they actually played, performed well there. The defensive line and outside linebackers, you're right, there wasn't as much pass rush, but I think in some ways that was kind of by design. Again, going back to the recap or the preview show before the game, I talked about how like I, I actually would have had a similar strategy. With Ian Book's ability to to run and escape the pocket, when you rush up field and you get too aggressive like that, you can kind of create some of those natural rushing things where you can kind of just take off. So there was a little bit of mush rush on some of the standard downs. We didn't bring as much manufactured pressure. Uh, the blitz packages were not as aggressive. We still blitzed them on third down at times. We, we weren't bringing as many guys. We brought some uh, some pressure from the boundary, from the cornerback position at times. And it, we had some success there. But, um, you know, you're right. There were no sacks. It wasn't The havoc rate wasn't where it has been the first three games. But I think part of that was by design. Another part of it was that Notre Dame's a step up in competition. That's a pretty good veteran offensive line. And uh, they did a pretty decent job. You can, so you can combine that with the fact that we weren't as aggressive coming after Ian Book. Uh, I think that kind of uh, led to us maybe not having the havoc numbers that we've had. But I do think we have, uh, even though we didn't get him on the ground, we did affect him at times. I mean, you go back to that last play of the game where um, that fourth down play where we bad the ball down. That play was made because Nolan Smith comes free off the edge. Jermaine Johnson comes up the gut there. He had nowhere to go. Nolan base he right he was right there had him on the ground. But again, book is slippery. That's one of the reasons you don't come too aggressive at him because he can slip out of that and then make a play happen. Fortunately for us, he did not make a play happen on that final play. But it, it certainly could have happened. But good question for sure. Appreciate it. And before we get to our next question, this is a great time to remind you guys that if you're looking for seats for anything, especially all of our Georgia football games the rest of the way, we've got the game in Knoxville against Tennessee come up in a couple weeks. And if you're looking for tickets, just go to Vivid Seats, use their mobile app, and use the promo code OVERTIME to save up to $100 on all ticket purchases. This is for first-time customers only, but if you've never used the Vivid Seats mobile app before, go ahead. Download it, sign up today, buy whatever ticket you're looking for the rest of the way, and save yourself 100 bucks. I mean, who doesn't like that? All right, next up, Alexander says, The punting situation is troubling and almost cost us the game. Was this just a bad game for Camarda or something more serious? That's a great question, Alexander. I don't know, man. I, I Right at this point, I do not know what to think about Jake Camarda. I watched Jake Camarda a lot in high school. He was a kicker and punter, place kicker and punter. He did. A, he was elite at both of those. He was a big-time signee for us. And I, I know people don't really get all that excited about kickers and punters coming out of high school. I was excited about Jake Camarda. I thought like, there was a chance he could be our kicker and punter. Um, but he's at the punting position right now. And I, I don't know, man. Like, can you watch him in pregame warmups? I, I try to watch this guy as close as I can, and he hits some absolute boomers, man. I'm talking like insane hang time, great distance, the total package. But he hit three or four, maybe you know five of those, and then he'll hit one that he just completely shanks. And it always happens, even in pregame warmups. He'll shank it every now and then. And it's kind of like, oh, that wasn't good. Let's hope that doesn't happen in the game. But um, it obviously happened a couple times against Notre Dame, and we've seen it a couple times before last year. But he does have the ability to absolutely destroy the football and put it way up high in the air the hang time and get some great distance on it. He's just got to become more consistent. I don't have the answer for that. You know, everything Kirby says is he does it in practice, and he's, he's an incredible punter in practice. you got to go out there and do it on the field. And he's done it. He's just got to do it more consistently. Again, I don't know the answer there, but um, I'm starting to – I don't want to go too far yet because that was the first time that we really noticed it this year. But we had we did see it some last year, although he was a true freshman. 
I'm concerned that it might, might be something more serious than just a bad game, a bad kick or two. Because one of those that he that he shanked in the, the Notre Dame game, if you go back and watch it closely on the replay, he almost flat out missed the football. Like he almost just whiffed. And I was like, oh my God. Um, so I'm concerned that it might be something more serious, but I'm not ready to go out on the limb and say it 100% definitively is a more serious issue. Yeah, I want to give him a little bit more time, but uh, I'm certainly keeping a close eye on it for sure. All right, Jamie, he says, that atmosphere was straight fire. Devon Wilson is an animal and let Fromm sling it. Kirby has shown everyone why he is a player's coach, and we aren't going anywhere. Anything you'd like to add to that, Tyler? Uh, Jamie, I love the enthusiasm. I feel I feel that too, man. I was really energized after the game. I wasn't as down as some people were. Would I have loved to have blown them out? Of course, of course. I knew, and the only reason I was frustrated because I knew what the narrative would be nationally. I knew what people would say. I didn't necessarily feel that way, but I knew what people would say. And I didn't want to hear about it for two weeks with the bye week coming up. So that frustrated me. But I feel good about this team. We're not going anywhere. Again, we still have all the pieces we need to be a true championship-level team. We're not there yet. We've got to continue to improve. But let's not forget that Clemson almost lost at home to Syracuse last year. They got bailed out at the end there. Oklahoma, you know, last year made the college football playoff, won the Big 12 championship, and they had to beat Army in double overtime last year. This happens when it's early in the season. You, you've got to be able to kind of just dig deep and win these games sometimes when you don't have your best game. And that's what happened here against Notre Dame. So I still feel perfectly fine, really good about this football team. Uh, the environment, the Charlie, I'm going to throw this to you. I know you're not one that like gets all excited about the environment and the pyrotechnics and things like that. But you got to admit, like, how awesome was that environment? It was really cool. Um, I think that we should have spent some of that money on fixing the speakers and the sound system. That's still, compared Instead, to other stadiums in, in the uh, country, it's, oh, yeah. it's horrible compared to Auburn, compared to anywhere, really. And how many times do I need to say this? We've got to get rid of the karaoke thing. Oh my God, it's the same songs every year. I know not everyone goes to every game, but for what, three years now we've done this karaoke jam thing or whatever. It is literally the same six to seven songs every year they just rotate. And it's driving me crazy. It does not get the, the stadium pumped up. If you go to other states, even Vanderbilt. We were, talk, we were at Vanderbilt and we were talking about how great that environment was. The speakers were amazing. I know it's a smaller stadium. But the music choice, the selection was significantly better. All right, like We were getting pumped up in that stadium at, at Vanderbilt. And our stadium is like, oh my God. Now when we do like the, 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 the red lights and all the LED stuff, that was amazing. But there's just still so many things that we can do to improve that environment. But did you like the LED stuff? I know that you're usually yeah. not. I mean, I just, you know. So you didn't, I know you were worried about having a stroke. You did not have a stroke. I did not have a stroke. Which is. And I hope no one else did either. And someone corrected you. You wouldn't have a stroke. You'd have a seizure, correct? Yes. But so no seizures. You were good? No seizures. But it was fun. I mean, it was, it was an incredible environment. Would you say that's the loudest that that statement's been when you've been inside of it? You know, I have a really bad memory, so I probably wouldn't remember. But it was very loud. What about like compared to let's go to other states like Auburn in 2017 we got blown out there South Carolina 2012 remember they blew us out in that game I mean I just can't remember but you it was remember. very loud I think it was as loud as any environment that I've been in in a regular season environment Yeah I mean it was louder than L- can, you, can you at least remember back yeah, to LSU it, last year It was nice that the students decided to show up and stay Oh um, Oh They don't, they don't shots. show up They don't well, they, well, they, not all of them. It's it's the the block frat seating in the top, right? In the upper level. Right. That's and yeah. They, they showed up, up so I get yeah, I gotta give them credit for this game. They show up for big games. They don't show up for right. games they don't care about. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, I thought it was an incredible environment. I'm totally with you, Jamie. It was awesome. You're I'm totally with you. Let Fromm sling. Let this, let this guy just go out there and do his thing. 
Um, and you're right, Kirby's a players' coach. Well, we know we've known that, but you see the videos after the game, him and let's turn it up and all that kind of stuff and going crazy. You know, recruits eat that stuff up, and he's hard on his players. He is, but they know he loves them, and it's things like that that always remind them of of, of really where Kirby Smart's heart is for sure. All right. Next up, Daniel says, if you take away the muffed punt, do you think the dog's defense gives up a touchdown? Well, we did give up a touchdown later in the game, uh, in the second half, the one where they finally decided they're going to start. Do you we think go, that would have kept us from giving up that touchdown too? Um, probably not. I, I, th- I think we probably. I think the score probably would have been twenty-three to ten in that because I think we wouldn't have given up that touchdown in the first half. We probably would have gone up, gone in, on into the half. What we, we were down was it ten to seven? We probably would have gone up seven to three, um, going into the half up that score, and maybe they don't score in the second half, but. I mean, they finally decided they were going to pick on Tyreek McGee, which I don't understand why it took them that long to figure it out because Tyreek McGee does not really play corner. I think he played like nine snaps all year on defense coming into this game. And our, our elite cornerback, a guy who I think is an elite quarterback, cornerback, and Eric Stokes goes out in the first drive, and it took them until late in the fourth quarter to finally decide they're going to pick on Tyreek McGee with a guy that's six foot five and McGee's like maybe 5'10". Like that, to me, that's just... Talk about poor in-game coaching. That's poor in-game coaching. They were just so entrenched on their game plan, which was a good game plan coming in. But once we adjusted, they just it took them too long to veer away from that. Um, so I, I think they probably would have scored that touchdown. But, yeah, I think that's probably about it. Right. It's fair. Next up, listener Wendell says that he felt like Notre Dame played a lot of cover zero and were constantly blitzing trying to stop the run. Why are we constantly throwing screens in that situation, and why not get into a 12 personnel and have our max pass protection and take some shots on some sus- excuse me, some suspect <laughs> DBs? You're having trouble over there. <laughs> yeah. Suspect's not like, that some, difficult of a word. Yeah, I know. Sorry. It's difficult. It's okay. Anyways, so it's okay. what do you Long think? day, right? Um, you know what, Wendell? I agree with you 100% in, in your assessment of what they were doing. They did play a lot of cover zero at times. Sometimes that was just, it was disguised as zone coverage. But there were, like the touchdown pass, which I, I mentioned this on Twitter team, my man, um, but for everyone else out there, that touchdown pass, the back shoulder fade to Lawrence Cager, that was totally cover zero. They had two deep safeties at the snap, but as soon as the ball was snapped, they both came flying upfield. Uh, there was no safety help there. It was completely uh, man coverage out there on an island, and Fromm saw it and made them pay. And like I said in the recap show, Blitz Jake from at your peril. If you get to him, that's one thing. But if you don't get to him, he is going to eat you alive. Uh, and that's exactly what we saw on Saturday. He just destroyed them when they started to do that. And it took us a while to, to, for us to adjust. But once we made that adjustment, um, it was pretty much game over there. Uh, but I actually, I don't really necessarily have an issue with throwing some screens when they're in cover zero. But sometimes, like when like Swift got stopped by the line of scrimmage, some of that was when they were we were throwing screens when they were in zone coverage there. And um, they had a guy like they were they were sitting in the first half they were sitting on the short passing and they were sitting on the the passing game to the uh, to the running backs and we've done a lot of that this year and they and they probably felt like we didn't trust our receivers which we clearly don't and they wanted to challenge us to, to throw the ball down the field because we haven't shown much of that this year so they came in there defensively as a game plan to take away the short passing game to take away our passing game to our running backs because we they know we want to get those guys in space and let them make plays. Um, because, but if we're in cover zero and they're blitzing, like that's the to me the perfect time to call a screen. If you can, if you can get the ball off and there's no safety deep, and uh, you get the ball over the blitzing defenders, and you get a couple of offensive linemen out in front of you, dude, you could take it to the house. We just um, we just called screens at the wrong time in that game. If we would have called them in some of those cover zero situations, I think we could have had, had big plays. We just uh, they just had the right plays dialed up at the right time. When we were calling those screens. Um, but I'm, I, let's talk about the 12 personnel for a second here. I want to go into this. This is one thing that does frustrate, frustrate me about our offense right this second. 12 personnel, if you guys aren't familiar with what that means, it means one running back, two tight ends. 
there's five skill players you can have on the field at a given time. So if we have one running back, two tight ends, that means we got two receivers out there, right? So that's what 12 personnel is. And we do run a lot of 12 personnel going back to last year. And I don't have an issue with 12 personnel. The New England Patriots really popularized this years ago when they had Gronkowski and uh, the murderer Aaron Hernandez. Go Florida, right? Go Urban Meyer. Um, and the reason they were so successful with that 12 personnel is because defenses have to, when you're in 12 personnel, you are a threat to run the football. When you have two tight ends, that's a lot of people consider like a jumbo look type set. So they have to match defensively with their personnel. They have to match with big personnel. But if you have athletic tight ends, those hybrid type tight ends like Aaron Hernandez was and like Rob Gronkowski was before he retired, you get those guys matched up on linebackers and safeties and you can you can destroy them all game long with serious mismatches. And, that, and the Patriots made a living off that for a couple of years. Um, and I'm waiting for us to do that. We talk all the time about how much we love our tight ends, how we have all these great tight ends, right? And we use so much 12 personnel, but we run the ball. I don't have the exact numbers, but I would say it's in the high high to mid, mid to high 80% range, if not higher than that, when we're 12 personnel that we actually run the football. So it, running 12 personnel is not a problem, but you actually have, for it to be effective, you need to actually utilize it for what it's for, create mismatches. Yeah, you're going to run the football at times, but you're also going to take shots with to your tight ends who are matched up on um, slower linebackers and safeties who they should have an advantage against in the pass game. It's all about creating mismatches in the pass game. They have to match you with the big personnel, and you can you can make them pay there. But we're not making them pay in the passing game, and that's one of my frustrations. We are just simply not maximizing what 12 personnel can bring to the table for you. And I I'm I've been waiting for it to happen for two plus years now, and I was hopeful with Jim uh, with James Coley that we'd see more of actually utilizing the mismatches that it creates for us, but we haven't seen it yet. I was hoping maybe that we would be saving it for Notre Dame. I was holding out hope there, but we didn't see it against Notre Dame, so I don't know, man. I'm starting to think it's just not part of our offense. We just go 12 personnel just to run the football because we just don't really do much else out of it, and it drives me crazy because we could really, really hurt teams with that. We absolutely could, but I really don't think you're looking too far into it, man. I think that you're making some good points there. All All right. right. Next up, Justin says it seems like Cole... Kmet. Kmet. That's what I was going to say. Was getting open in the center of the field on almost every other play. Do you think this was just a blown assignment over and over? Or that those intermediate throws may be something that could hurt us moving forward? I do think it's something that that could potentially hurt us going forward if we're playing some better tight ends. Like Kyle Pitts from Florida is having a pretty good year right now. He's a guy that we certainly need to... to, uh, Take account of when we play them. Dominic Wood Anderson's a pretty good tight end for Tennessee, unfortunately for them. Unfortunately for us, they don't really have a quarterback to get him the ball very much right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think our linebackers, uh, particularly a guy like Monty Rice and Tate Crowder at times, but to a lesser degree, Tate Crowder, those guys that we're going with, like those guys played the majority of the game at inside linebacker. I thought they played really well for the most part, especially against the run. Uh, really stifled the Notre Dame run game. But I do think that they struggle a little bit in coverage, particularly Monty Rice. Uh, and Notre Dame felt the same way, very clear. That was their game plan, to attack the mid-range there, the intermediate range, use Cole Komet. Um, so I do think that's something that we need to work on there. And that's where guys like Quay Walker and N'Kobe Dean, as they get more and more comfortable in the system and our coaches gain more trust in them, I do think they're going to start to play more and they will take – um, they will take some of that out of the equation because the guy like Nicobe Dean is playing a lot on third down situations because we trust him more in pass coverage with his athleticism and, and ability to cover some of those guys in space. Quay Walker, I think, brings a lot of that same versatility as well, maybe not to the degree that, that Nicobe Dean does, but he brings that versatility as well. And so does uh, Chain Tindall to a degree as well. But um, I, I don't know. Like Part of me thinks that, and, and maybe I'm just giving the coaches too much credit here, we clearly had not game plan appropriately for to account for Cole Komet. That's pretty clear. We can all agree on that, I think. 
But I'm going to give them a little bit of a break here because I'm not sure how they were supposed to know Cole Komet was going to be that much of a featured player for them in this game. Because going back to, the, like I said at the beginning of the show, the first two years of this guy's career, I think it was like 176, 178 yards combined receiving this guy's had through his first two years. He did not play the, their first two games. This was the, his first action of the year. We had no idea this guy was going to be that much of a playmaker for them. Once we figured it out in the first half, we adjusted appropriately and uh, we were able to take him much more out of that game. He had seven catches and a touchdown in the first half. Only had two catches in the second half. We certainly tr- started to take him away a little bit more. It made sense to me. What we were doing coming in defensively made a little more sense to me. There, you know, Without knowing what Cole Komet was going to bring to the table through the first two games, their biggest playmaker on offense has been Ian Book and Chase Claypool. So we were doubling Claypool, especially once... Um, Eric Stokes goes out, and you bring Tyreek McGee in. We adjust in the second half because they weren't really taking advantage of that matchup, and the rest was history. So um, I don't want to say like I'm freaking out about it, but um, I do think that if there's a weakness in our front seven, it's our linebackers in pass coverage. So it's something I would be watching out for um, the rest of the way for sure. All right, next up, Patrick asks, why didn't we see more of the other Tyreek, meaning Tyreek Stevenson versus Notre Dame? McGee was giving up a lot physically to Claypool, and they used that uh, matchup successfully in key spots. If it wasn't an injury, what does Tyreek Stevenson need to do to earn Kirby's trust? Thanks for the question, Patrick, and it's a great question, man. I I was sitting there in the stadium wondering the exact same thing, like, um, where's Tyreek Stevenson? Like when, when Stokes went out, I fully expected to see Tyreek Stevenson come to the game, but then we see Tyreek McGee, the other Tyreek. I, I, I don't get it. I, I, I guess trying to understand what Curry's thinking there, he trusts Tyreek McGee. He's played a lot of football for us. He's not the most talented guy. Again, he's only played nine snaps defensively. I think it's the number coming into to Saturday's game against Notre Dame. So he hasn't been much of our plans at this point, and Tyreek Stevenson has played a lot more than McGee. So I was thinking in-game, in like, well, Stevenson must be hurt. There's got to be something there. There's got to be something there. But apparently that's not the case. And Kirby just told Tyreek McGee at the beginning of the week that if something happens, we're thin on cornerbacks and we're gonna we're gonna have you start taking reps there this week because he's been playing safety and star for us. Hasn't really been playing corn, which is a different animal. Uh, I don't want to give the guy credit. He did the best he could out there, man. He he was a gamer, went out there on short notice at cornerback and and and, and tried to 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 hold a bigger, more physical guy, like you mentioned, Chase Claypool, hold this guy down. The, well, I think who I think is their biggest playmaker offensively, maybe along with Cole Komet now. And he did an admirable job. Um, partly that was because they just weren't targeting him, which I, again, still can't quite figure out. Once they started targeting him, once we go up two scores, then he basically didn't have a chance. I mean, he was trying his best, man. And I, and I love the guy. He has great leadership, but just uh, wasn't going to get it done there. So I, long term, I'm, I'm hoping Stokes is okay. Uh, he came back in late in that game, so I, I'm hoping he should be okay, you would think, especially with a bye week. But we need to get some guys healthy there. I don't know what to say about Tyreek Stevenson. I'm just not sure. Maybe Kirby just didn't trust in that situation to know exactly what to do. And in a big-time game like that, he was going to go with a guy who might not be as talented, but a guy that he trusts more to at least know what to do and to not have a bust. Kirby's big on giving up big plays and doesn't want to have a bust. So I think that's maybe what his thinking was. But it's hard to say without talking to him. And unfortunately, I don't get that opportunity. But it's a great question. I don't really have a firm answer for you. All right, Alex wants to know, do you consider this game a success from a Havoc standpoint? Keyword, there it is again, Havoc. Havoc, right? Havoc, That's, Havoc, Havoc. It's the buzzword. Um, like, but, Charlie, like, it wasn't, we, like, we weren't as successful creating Havoc as we have been. No, but we're also playing Notre Dame, who is ranked number seven, whereas we have been playing Arkansas State, Murray State, and Vanderbilt. Right, so it kind of makes sense that we weren't as yeah. successful. So, but, but do you think like maybe this is more, like maybe we haven't improved that much from a Havoc yeah, standpoint? possibly. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and we talked about this a little bit on the recap show. Um, 
I, I'm still, I still feel a lot better about where we are from a Havoc standpoint. I, I gave you guys a number last year, I think through the first three games. I don't have the exact number here, but like, it's like five or six times more Havoc that we created in the first three games this year compared to the first three games a year ago. And we play like similar, similar competition. We did play South Carolina in that, in that stretch last year, but similar competition early. Um, and we were not near as successful. And then going back to um, some of the other FCS teams, Austin P. we played last year, we had no sacks in that game, no sacks against Middle Tennessee State. So even though some of the Havoc numbers that we have put up um, this season have been against far inferior competition, we weren't doing that against the far inferior competition from last year and the previous year. So I do think we've improved there. I think a lot of, and I will stand by, I think a lot of going back and kind of watching that game, I think a lot of what we were doing defensively was controlled aggression. Kirby even used that, I think in one of the interviews in game, when I went back and watched it on Sunday, uh, when he was doing one of the interviews there on the sideline things. And I think that was part of the deal because we knew that Ian Book could create, uh, he could certainly create with his legs and really hurt us in certain situations if we got too aggressive coming after him. And, and that's nothing new with Kirby Smart. You know he's you know back going back to when he was at Alabama when the dual threat quarterbacks became all the rage, Alabama's defense got lit up at times. And one of the adjustments they started to make was kind of the mush rush where you're trying to contain the quarterback in the pocket. And I talked about on the preview show how I felt it was really important to make Ian Book beat you from the pocket because I didn't think he could consistently do it, and they couldn't consistently hit big plays when he's in the pocket. And I think that proved to be the case. Yeah, they they moved the ball decently in the first half, but we still held them about 320 total yards. We completely held them in check. The big plays have been living off of the first couple games of the year. They didn't hit any of those plays really um very few plays of more than 20 yards in that game just a handful there uh, and nothing that was like a debilitating play for us so i think that was part of the game plan so i'm not freaking out right now i think uh we still have a lot more options a lot more depth i mean last year was really deandre walker and who else for us rushing the passer now we have options and we can do some different things we have depth there so uh i, I still feel a lot better about our, our our pass rushing and our ability to affect the quarterback than I did at any point the past couple years. And I, I, I'm going to chalk this up to being kind of a one-game, maybe a game plan type situation right now. All right. Next up, Nathan says, when looking at the stats, uh, Georgia had 26 pass attempts and 33 rushing attempts. Personally, he w- he likes the 45-55 ratio, but feels that our passing game was too predictable based on, the, on Notre Dame teeing off on swing passes out of the back. Backfield, I'm guessing. I mean, I guess it means the backfield. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I mentioned that a little bit earlier. I think in the first half, especially, we were far too predictable. Uh, and again, we just goes back to not trusting the wide receivers vertically. We we kind of opened up a little bit more in the second half, and uh, we became a little a little less predictable. And huh, predictably, what happens there? Oh, we start making plays down the field. We could have been and should have been doing that in the first half. So that was certainly a frustration for me, and it seemed like it was for you as well. And I, I'm I'm with you, man. I have no issue with a 45-55 ratio. I have no issue with that whatsoever. Um, it's just a matter of of how we go about doing it. What does it look like? And what situations are we doing that in? Our offense has been very successful the past couple years. We're consistently in the top 10 range in yards per in yards per play, which is, that's elite stuff, guys. So our system works when we run it effectively. When, when teams load up the box and they have a plus two scenario when they're outnumbered by two guys in the box, we've got to be able to take shots down the field. And we've done that with success and confidence in the past couple of years. We just didn't do it on Saturday until we got into the second half. And then we kind of, I don't want to say we ran away with it, but we certainly uh, turned that game around the second half. We dominated that second half. We really did, except for that, with the exception of that one drive Notre Dame had after we go up 23-10. We dominated the second half. Um, so yeah, I'm with you there, uh, but you're right. I, I would like to be a little less predictable and take some more shots for, vertically down the field, as I've made pretty clear throughout this show. Let Jay Fromm free, as Lynn said. Free, free him Jake up. Fromm. Free Jay Fromm, for sure. But uh, all right, guys. 
That does it for us here today on the Glory UGA podcast. Got to as many questions as we could in our time frame today. We'll get to all the other questions that we did not get to later on the week. Curtis will be back with me for that show. We're not going to have a game preview show because we don't have a game this week. So we'll have part two of the mailbag. So be looking forward to that. I promise if we didn't use your question, we will use it on uh, the next edition of this show. So please don't take it personally. But thanks for listening, guys. We always appreciate it. For Charlie, I'm Tyler. And as always... Go dogs!